Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. It's almost 2015! Oh my god, it's almost the year that Marty McFly travels to in Back to the Future Part 2. So all year, we're going to hear about whether or not hoverboards were ever actually real or not real, or were they banned, or were they legal only in Germany on a nearly constant basis. We're going to hear that. It's going to be a good time. But, as you know, this is our last episode for 2014. And because we're part of the Infinite Guest Network, this episode is part of the Infinite Guest Year-End Extravaganza. So by the way, it's the perfect time to also check out some of the other shows that are in this network. For I, for example, I was just the other day listening to Dinner Party Download, which I love. Kind of going through a few of their episodes, actually, because I saw on one of them they had Garfunkel and Oates. And I actually went to high school with one of them. I'm not sure which one is which. That, Kate Micucci. That's who I went to high school with. But they were on Dinner Party Download. They always have amazing guests on that show. So find that show and others and check them out as part of the year-end extravaganza at infiniteguest.org. So last episode, I hinted at this episode. Here's what we're doing for our best of show for the Infinite Guest year-end extravaganza. We are taking the word extravaganza seriously. And so without further ado, I give you the best stories and the best moments, descriptions, titles, references, ties to music, and shout-outs to 1970s TV icons from Soundtrack Series 2014. I think your name tag I said Debra by Beck, and I have to say, that is one of my favorite opening lines in any song. I met you at JCPenney. That sets the tone. And a very different song than one that would start, I met you at Sears. And if we're talking about opening lines, and we are now, while a lot of stories this year had fantastic opening lines, I don't know. I'd have to say that of all of them, writer-comedian Greg Gethard's opening line was my favorite. There was a time between 1999 and 2001 when white girls between the ages of 19 and 23 would hook up with any guy who seemed remotely British. <laughs> that all changed after 9-11, but, but that's another story. And then it's all downhill from there. No, I just, it's just that his story was about the song Girl from Mars by Ash and this date he went on that really didn't go as planned. The girl brought a wingman and they go to a ball game and then she wants to do the wave and he does not do the wave. It was great. And the story was from the show that we did in July at the Tin Angel in Philly, which I have to say, if I had to name an entire show that was the best live show of 2014 for soundtrack series, and I don't have to, but I will, it was that one. Philadelphia, the Tin Angel, July 11th, 2014. Best all-around show. Stories about teen pregnancy, a quote-unquote love affair with a guy from Real Big Fish, bad dates like Greg's, terrible loss, and 
the magic of a simple video game. Theater director and general manager John Charles tells it like this. Many years ago, Prince Darkness Ganon stole one of the Triforce with power. <laughs> Princess Zelda had, an, had one of the Triforce with wisdom. She divided into eight units to hide it from Ganon before she was captured. Go find the eight units link to save her. Broken English and unnecessary quotes aside, that's the beginning to The Legend of Zelda. How many people in here played The Legend of Zelda in the 80s the first time it came out? Thank you. How many people, people in here over eight as a child and had a little bit of a weight problem? <laughs> not as many, okay, not as many, that's fair. Well, here's the deal. I was, in the 80s, an overweight, for my size, a little bit over-enthusiastic young man who enjoyed fiction. The reality of my situation as a young, young man is, you know, I was sort of caught between, I was enthusiastic about sports, I'm a big sports fan, I had a lot of friends who were athletes, I had a lot of friends who were talented in this way or that way, and I never really knew where I fit. And that's cool, because I had super supportive parents, and this isn't a sob story. When I was 10 years old, I remember I had a Nintendo Entertainment System, and I was an only child, so I was super spoiled, so I got it the first Christmas it came out. I had a Nintendo Entertainment System, and I had, you know, all, all the favorites. I had Duck Hunt. Hogan's Alley, Super Mario Brothers, Excite Bike was the jam. And then I had like, I feel like Ghosts and Goblins was like an early one too. That Anyway, they all had the same labels, am I right? They had the little like pixelated version of the, from the game and it all had the same font and it was awesome. They were gray, cool, loved those games, played them, kind of got lost in them a little bit. Was pretty excited that this was something kind of like I was doing in the arcade, I could do the shit at home. And that's where the novelty ended. And then The Legend of Zelda came out. Had no idea what it was. Kids at school seemed excited. Sure, so I was excited. Do you know why? Because I'm a fat kid and I want to fit in. Back off. So, so Legend of Zelda comes out and my mom's like, and I'm like, mom, I gotta get The Legend of Zelda. And my mom's like, why are you so excited? I'm like, I don't know. I just gotta fucking get this thing. I gotta get it. You gotta buy it for me. I gotta play it. Because everybody's playing it and I don't want to be the fat kid that didn't know. Um, so, she, so, so we got The Legend of Zelda. I remember so, so clearly KB Toy Stores in the Exton Mall. We bought Legend of Zelda. I believe at the time they were $29.99 or $32, something around $30 Nintendo games were back then. It was pretty expensive. I remember putting in the bag and bringing it home. And I don't know how many of you remember this, but I think probably some of you remember opening that shit up and pulling that shit out. And oh my God, it's golden. <laughs> what? Are you kidding? Wait, 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 wait. So I got a stack over here. This high, only child, this high of these gray games. And I'm just like kicking that shit like, it's not gold. <laughs> Golden, okay? So, so I, I pop it out and I'm gonna be very honest. This is, I, I'm, tr I'm making light of this. This is a very significant moment for me because it was the first time I realized that something relatively mundane that I was into might have a deeper significance. I looked at this thing and I was hesitant to put it in because it just seemed special. I don't know why, I'm 37 and I know that's irrational. It just felt special. 
The only thing I had played video game-wise that felt different or unique was I was into these like text-based computer games for a little while, like Zork, and um, yes. thank you. And uh, there was like there was one there was one called like there was a Twilight Zone one that was really good, and um, I played them at this uh, this gifted program I was in with school because I'm gifted. So <laughs> Th those kind of things I always felt like I was into them because they seemed deep somehow and they seemed to matter somehow and it seemed like more of a journey to me. So I popped in Legend of Zelda and that song hit. That song that you heard when I was walking up, that, like, that's the very beginning intro too, like when you first put it in. And then that ridiculous little story comes up. I watched the whole intro and I remember hitting start, entering my name, which by the way was so unorthodox back then. I was like, why do I have to put my name in? This is really creepy. And the first screen comes up. There's nothing on the first screen. There's some trees and some rocks and a cave. And I little, literally remember sitting there doing nothing for about 30 seconds, expecting something to attack me, something to come on the screen, some kind of text, nothing. I walked in the cave. I got that brown sword, which we all know, by the way, ends up being a piece of shit by the end of the game. But at that moment, when I grabbed that sword from that old man and it made that, that little sound, I knew something big was starting. And I stepped out and that song kicked in and God damn it, I played that thing for hours. The reality of that is what that awoke in me was I have a true love as an adult for immersive experiences. And it's amazing to me that as a 10 year old fat kid in his basement playing The Legend of Zelda, the idea that something big and vast that I could get involved in unfolded in front of me. And 27 years later, that has blown up. And so many experiences that we have, electronic and otherwise, are built around creating universes and creating worlds that we can jump in and be a part of. For God's sakes, The Sims is still around. <laughs> but the point is this, okay? Wherever you find your inspiration, you find it. And that day, when I heard that song, and when I hear that song now, even walking up here, immediately I get that feeling and I'm reminded how awesome things can be if you just jump in with both damn feet. And I have a two and a half year old son right now and I see how excited he gets about every goddamn thing he sees. <laughs> and it's amazing and I love it and I only hope that one day he encounters something. I don't care what it is. It could be an apple. It could be a movie. It could be a painting. It could be a person. I don't care. I just want him to find one thing, one day that unlocks that feeling for him that, oh wait, this mundane thing can be more significant if I let it. Thank you. That was actually the first time anyone ever told a story about a theme song from a video game. I'm pretty sure. But it was not the first time anyone told a story about a theme song, period. In February, we did a show where people told stories about the TV theme songs that just stay with you and somehow influence the person that you are. So stories about the themes from The Jeffersons, Saved by the Bell, The A-Team, The Fall Guy. And so while we're at it, the award for best reason to want to be Lee Majors, of course, goes to storytelling legend Adam Wade. One of the things he says is, um, well, I'm not the kind of kiss and tell, but I've been seen with Farah. I've never been seen with anything less than a nine, so fine. So like he's with all the hot babes. 
He's a tough guy. He's a man's man. Adam Wade. You know what I mean? That's what I wanted. I want to be that. There's something about telling a story about yourself as it relates to music that makes you braver, more open, more vulnerable, more willing to share a dark secret about yourself. Storyteller Gia Young did just that as she uttered what I believe to be the absolute bravest line anyone spoke all year. I wanted a challenge tonight, so I asked myself what music is universally and unironically loathed. Uh, who would I be ashamed or even afraid to admit that I kind of like? And the answer is post-grunge American hard rock band Creed. Ha! Zing! Oh! Have another. That was actually from a show that we did earlier this year where people had to defend their unpopular music opinions from loving Creed, like Gia, to hating Beyonce. And I tell you, Philly may have been that, you know, best all-around show, but this was the bravest, most balls-out show. It's hard to get up in front of a room full of people and talk about how much you love Amy Grant. But by God, people did it. Because we all have those stories. We all have those unpopular music opinions where we feel lonesome and shameful. And we have those times that we, we hide our iPhone screens from the general public for fear that someone would glance over and actually see that you are choosing to listen to Green Jelly. But sometimes it just feels good to get it out. It feels good to admit. It feels good to just say it. I only love one Britney Spears song, and it's I'm a Slave for You. Now, speaking of speaking up, you couldn't do that without a voice. Awkward segue alert, okay, but you couldn't. And at this year's Pride show that we did at the legendary Stonewall Inn, performer and illustrator J. Owen Eisenberg tells us that as everything else about him changes, it's very important to him that he still keep his voice. Mr. Sandman. Yes? Bring us a dream. Give him a pair of eyes with a come-hither gleam. I was 12 years old, and marine biology camp was two weeks long, which is exactly how long it takes to convince a 12-year-old that they are either definitely going to be a marine biologist or that they might just end up playing one on TV in a television miniseries event, which was the route that I went. I'm not a marine biologist, but I am a performer. And I did learn how to perform at marine biology camp. Our final assignment, uh, we were each given a special topic and we could do literally anything we wanted, which is a very dangerous thing to tell 12-year-olds. And my topic was zoo which could refer to a whole variety of um, symbiodinium, but in my case referred to the special relationship between algae and coral. So I did the thing that made sense to me, which was to write a song about it and set it to the tune of Rock and Robin. I can't remember the entire song, but I do remember the chorus was very unoriginal, but the verse that I was the most proud of was something like, algae helps the coral calcify, it makes the coral hard so it doesn't die. <laughs> and and I did this whole song and afterwards everyone was clapping and cheering because no one else had written a song and they were like oh my god that was so great and I was like thank you thank you and they said yeah like you have such a beautiful voice and I was a little upset 
because no one was complimenting me on the content of the song and the and the research I had done painstakingly on Suzanne Thalley. But they were like, you have like just such a beautiful voice. And this boy named Tam, who I had a huge crush on, was like, you have the voice of an angel. And then I was like, okay, whatever you say, Tam. And they said, oh, like you have to sing something else for us. And I was like, no, that's fine. Like I was gonna retire my career as a singer at age 12 after having just started it that day. And they said, no, like sing for us. Come on, like we'll go back to your room and like you can sing. And I was like, sure, sounds cool. So this pod of marine biology campers was following me back to my room and and they watched me sit down on my bunk and like I put the covers around me because I was very nervous and they said so are you gonna sing and I said yeah and then I was about to start singing the song that I had just sung and they were like no 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 something different and I said sure sure and then I froze because I realized that the only music I really listened to at that age was like instrumental music and the only other songs that I knew that had words were things I had listened to in my dad's car oldies a lot of Roy Orbison and Elvis and the Cordettes and the only song I knew by heart was uh, Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes bum 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 Mr. Sandman bring me a dream make him the cutest that I've ever seen and I basically did the entire song and they were so excited and so proud and then they got bored with me and left And my friend Alicia stayed behind and she said, you know, like Tam was right, like you have a really beautiful voice. And I was like, thank you. Like, I mean, I'm kind of nervous because like I only get it for a few years and then it's gonna get all like weird and cracky and change. And you see a lot of weird shit at marine biology camp. There are some sea cucumbers you would not believe. (laughs) But (laughs) in that moment, Alicia looked at me like I was the weirdest thing at the bottom of a tide pool. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, like, you know, when it all happens, when you change. And she said, uh, yeah, that doesn't happen to girls. And I didn't know what being transgender was when I was 12 years old. I kind of just assumed that I would grow up to be however I envisioned to be, which in my head was a marine biologist or a squirrel or a boy. (laughs) And in all of these visions of the future, it was always a boy. Even when it was a squirrel, it was definitely a boy squirrel. And after that day, I realized two things. Like, at the moment, I'm apparently not gonna take that trajectory. And also, oh, like, I really like singing. (laughs) And I really like my voice. I remember really working hard to try and get my voice to go down. Like, I was like, I'm just gonna be, like, I wanna be an alto, you know what, I wanna be a tenor. Like, work hard, dream big. But I was always a first soprano, because I could hit, like, the whistle tones that no one really likes, but, like, they like them when they're in a choir. And at some point, I was like, you know what, screw it. I like my voice, I'm gonna like keep doing it the way I've been doing it. And I became very fond of my voice and I really grew to love it. It really only began to present a problem for me over the past year when I really started transitioning. And I started using the name Jay and using uh, pronouns he, him, and his. And it was all going fine until people would call me, um, say from like customer service hotlines, who didn't know me but knew that my name was, you know, Jay Eisenberg. I actually got a call last week um, after I did some kind of like work order for Verizon. And they called me back and said, uh, hey, uh, may I speak to Jay Owen Eisenberg? And I said, yes, this is he. And there was a pause. And they said, is this Jay? And I said, yes, this is Jay. And then there was a longer pause. Are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. And they said, I'm sorry. It's just that you sounded like a girl, but maybe it's just the phone. 
To which I really wanted to reply, well, you sound kind of like a judgmental asshole, but maybe it's just the phone. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't do that. I said something like, huh, you know phones, which was the, and I mean, I guess she did know phones. She works for Verizon. But really, I, I felt so paralyzed in that moment. And it was a shame just because I like my voice the way it is. And to me, it has always been a boy's voice because it is my voice and I'm a boy. And I don't like the fact that I live in a world where I have to change things about myself that I don't want to change in order to be perceived the way that I want to be perceived. I was with my parents earlier today. They were helping me set up an aquarium, and the irony is not lost on me there that I'm talking about marine biology camp, and honestly, having that aquarium is the, the first time I've really dealt with marine biology since I was 12 years old. At some point, I began to talk to them about what I would be doing tonight, and I mentioned Mr. Sandman, and my dad said, oh my gosh, I love that song, and I said, I know, that's why we listen to it in your car so much. <laughs> I think that was the first time that I actually really listened to the words. And when I was younger, the words always struck me as kind of creepy because they're singing about like Mr. Sandman come and like bring me this like amazing vision of a boy in my dreams who has like lips like clovers and roses. But when I was listening to my dad sing it, I had this thought of just, hey, Cordettes, I see what you're getting at. We're actually pretty similar. The only difference is when you're singing, you're dreaming about a boy that you could wake up to. And when I'm singing it, I'm dreaming about a boy I could wake up to be. Thank you. Your magic be Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. I'm always amazed, and I know I shouldn't be, but for whatever reason, it always confounds me how often people sing the song they're talking about as they're telling their story about that song. It's it's the musical theater rule where you reach a point where words are no longer enough. Emotions are too big and you're bursting at the seams with them and you just have no choice but to sing. It happens a lot when people tell stories about music. And so the best rendition of a song within a story is writer and DJ Chris Apollo Lynn's rendition of Heartbeats by the Knife in his story about the death of his grandmother. On the drive down, I put on the Knife's live album. About an hour outside of Austin, Heartbeats came on. The vocal delivery is very raw, making the feeling of the heartbreak in the song even more intense. It was all really sad, but what did me in was this chorus. To call for hands up above to lean on Wouldn't be good enough for me, oh In that moment, I felt my grandmother. I felt all the pain and suffering that she'd had over the last few months. I felt the joy that we had together the beauty and love that we shared throughout our lives. And I also felt this deep sense of loss, understanding that this was it. This is the end. By the way, I have to tell you, that story was also the recipient of the Not a Dry Eye in the House Award. You could, you could hear the sniffling in the audience from the stage. Just so heartbreaking. So, okay, we need funny. Stat, the best title of a diary entry ever. Thank you, Isaac Oliver. My father went into my bedroom one afternoon to turn off a light, and I'd left my diary open on my bed, an action he insists was a subconscious plea for his help. He read the entry that the diary was left open to, a then-untitled free-form piece that I will now title, Without a Doubt I'm Gay, parentheses, All the Ways I'd Blow Brad Renfro. <laughs> 
The best use of Queen music, Zach Hall. My first experience with Queen was the Flash Gordon soundtrack. My father used to play this record every Sunday, full blast, like while he was pumping iron in the garage. Like he would like, he had like a full body mirror and he'd be like, don't, 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 flash. The best description of what kissing is, Mary Elizabeth Webster. And kissing is awesome. Like somebody wants to put their face on your face. <laughs> That level of intimacy is only reserved for really special interactions. And the best call for people who might own a barn. It's in this next story from our Eric Thomas. I'm not going to tell you what he says now, but trust me, you'll know it when you hear it. I went to this really nice high school in Baltimore, and it's, I, I, I used to be like, oh, you know, it was, it was a nice high it was, it was fucking nice. My parents spent a lot of money on this high school. There was 82 acres of forest land. I rode horses for credit. Uh, it was awesome. When I was in eighth grade, a new ninth grader started, and her name was Electra Bino. And this was a super small school, and we'd all been uh, with each other for years, and we'd all tried to furtively date each other in middle school. And so Electra showed up, and she was new, and that was interesting. And she had all these secrets, and she wasn't looking to divulge them. She was quiet in a place where everyone was loud and expressive, and she was black. She was one of four black students in her class, and I was one of eight black students in my class. And so I, I felt like we owed some, each other some sort of conversation Electra and I didn't do any of that. She was just sort of like this mystery. I joined the, the Black Awareness Club in high school. And I don't remember exactly what we did. We had like a Black Awareness Day where I think we just had like speakers talk about like, you know, slavery happened, right? Um, <laughs> but like for the other like 12 months or 11 months, we would just be like just sitting there like, yo, I'm real black. And other people would be like, yo, I'm real black too. And like the one white girl, the one white girl would be like, you guys are black, no offense. <laughs> Electra uh, never joined the Black Awareness Club. And one time I, I just asked her, I was like, why didn't you join the club? And she said, because I don't want to, which I found fascinating. <laughs> Eventually, she, uh, we, we got to be friends. I guess you could say I liked her. That summer, I, I got a job uh, in the school library uh, doing inventory. Uh, there were two people who got, the, got that position. The other was Electra. And I used to go to the library all the time when I was a kid because I was extremely popular. <laughs> And uh, I would go to the Woodlawn Library in Baltimore and I would load my arms up with books and then I would go over to the AV section and I would, buy two, I would borrow two cassettes. It was uh, the uh, uh, Madonna's Immaculate Collection and the soundtrack to Beaches. Uh, <laughs> because uh, although I, I wasn't gay back then, I was obvious. <laughs> and I would just wear those bitches out. And then I would go to the librarian and be like, uh, yeah, we need to order a new copy of Beaches. And they'd be like, oh, here comes little black Liberace. God bless him. God bless him. Oh, God. I loved libraries. And so getting this job where we just had to, Electra and I just had to, to go through every aisle in our, our school library and scan every single book. And if it was out of place, we had to put it back in the place. It was heaven, because we didn't do any of that. All summer long, we talked about the O.J. Simpson verdict. We talked about, we talked about the weather. We talked about uh, the other students. Oh, we gossiped like little bitches. We gossiped. <laughs> she talked the most about Madonna. 
Electra was obsessed with Madonna. She was like, she was an, she had an encyclopedic knowledge of Madonna's career. And like, we would go at lunch. She would get, we would get in her car, and we would speed over to the Towson Town Center, and we would go to the Sam Goody, uh, and we would just stand there in M under Pop and just look at her albums. By the time the school year came around, we were inseparable. It got to be springtime. I asked Electra to go to my junior prom with me, and Electra asked me to go to her senior prom, and it just seemed obvious that it would happen. I took all my library money and I bought a, uh, rented a town car and went over to her, her uncle's house and my parents were in a car behind me with like 16 cameras. And I like, I slid this enormous wrist corsage on her wrist. But I kind of like in the pictures, like she's just sort of like tilting just a little bit. <laughs> and we went to the prom, which was ironically at a barn. Everyone in the school had so much money and they were like, we should have prom at a barn. <laughs> and they looked like Pinterest today like mason jars and Christmas lights strung along the top and benches. And I, was just, I walked in, I was like, well, this is just ghost. This, this, is, this is some, this is bullshit. <laughs> Cut to 15 years later, that's exactly the way my wedding is going to look. <laughs> if you have a barn, holler at a bitch. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, we danced a little bit, although she didn't really like to dance. I didn't, I didn't know how to. We just kind of stood around in the, the garden of the, uh, of the barn. It was prom. She went to Wharton the next year, and we kind of lost contact. Every once in a while, we would instant message each other. Like, the internet was just sort of starting up. I really loved her. March of 98, the uh, Ray of Light, of course, came out. Um, and that was very important. I bought it on the first day. And the French exchange trip occurred. It was supposed to happen the year before, and I was going to go. But then there was some sort of problem with like Algerian terrorists or something. And so over the, like, in the intervening time between then and like May, March of 98, I, I decided that I was afraid of terrorism and that I, I, I don't know French, actually. So I don't know what I was going to be doing. <laughs> but Electra was going to go. And so we were saying our goodbyes in the library, as usual, and, and uh, we walked outside the library, and she started to cry. And I said, well, what's wrong? And she said, my, my mom would be so happy for me. And I hugged her, and I whispered in her ear, I said, have the best time. And she pulled back and she smiled at me, and uh, then she flew away. Somewhere after that, midway through sophomore year, she took herself away from us, and I never knew why. When I was a, a strange, uncomfortable boy, I met a melancholy, awkward girl. And none of that exists anymore, and that's the story that I tell. It's Christmas lights strung across a barn ceiling and blasting Madonna and dusty books out of order. And I, and I, I tell it on dates because I want this other person to know that I loved this girl at one time. That happened to me, and maybe it can happen to us. When I moved here, I took a walk around uh, the UPenn campus. I was like looking for Warden. And I, I, I put in headphones and I listened to, to Ray of Light because that is how I remember her. And that's why I tell this story. The story doesn't end where she ended it. For me, it ends in those car trips, blasting music, riding around Baltimore. To me, it ends uh, at the prom in a barn. To me, it ends the first time she told me her name. And maybe there's another way the story ends. Maybe there's a million possible universes, a library of, of stories of me and her. I tell this story because you left and I'm trying to find you in the faces of strangers. Because I believe that somewhere we're standing outside of a library and you're crying and we're hugging and I'm whispering, have the best time. And you smile at me and anything is possible for anyone forever. Thank you.
I think that was also the best closing line of 2014. So I think we'll end there. And that's it. That's our episode for this go round. This has been the soundtrack series for 2014. Huge hugs and complicated handshakes to the Poisson Rouge, the Long Center, Stonewall, the Museum of the Moving Image, the Tin Angel, the North Door, Videology, and of course, American Public Media and Infinite Guest. Thank you, all of these organizations, for opening your doors and giving us a place to crash. Thank you to each and every storyteller this year, to everyone who worked on the live show, sound, box office, bartending, to everyone who wrote about us anywhere, and to everyone who followed us on Twitter, Facebook, subscribed to this podcast, gave us a rating, or came to a live show. I know who each and every one of you are, and I know where you live. Okay, maybe not, but I do know what you do for this show, and your support and contributions mean everything to me. I can't do this without you, and I don't, and so thank you for making 2014 the best year for soundtrack series yet. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. See you in 2015. We're officially in the future.